And the first day of school, like a bunch of kids came to greet me because they heard that there was an Indian coming to their school, an Indian from Canada, right? And and some of us may be familiar with the infatuation that a lot of European cultures have with indigenous cultures in North America, right? Um, I didn't realize that until afterwards, though. Like my good friend, the guy who would become one of my best friends uh, said, hey, yeah, we came to see you that day because we heard that there was an Indian coming. <laughs> and uh, he said, we were kind of disappointed when we saw you because you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt. What Were You Thinking, the podcast that goes beyond the pages of the books we love. I'm your host, Dana Goldstein, and I invite you to join me as we ask authors to share the story behind their stories. Today, you're going to meet Wabagisha Grice, author of Moon of the Crusted Snow. This dystopian novel was hard for me to shake off. In fact, even months after reading it, I still can't get over the fear it triggered in me. Wab began his full-time career as a reporter for CBC Winnipeg before moving on to Toronto and Ottawa. Even back then, Wab was crafting stories in the off hours after work. He has authored two nonfiction books, a collection of short stories, and two novels. Now let's get into this intriguing conversation with Wab. First thing I need is I need a lesson in pronunciation. Sure. Okay, so let me see if I get your name right. I've been practicing and I was watching your your broadcast from CBC Days. <laughs> get it. So, uh, and I write everything phonetically. Um, Wabagishig, is that right? Yep. Oh, yeah, I got it. Okay. (laughs) And Chi, can you help me out on that one? Megawitch. Oh, Chimigwetch. 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 Yeah. That means thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I love that. Mm. And uh, Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe. Close, Anishinaabe. 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 Yeah, exactly. Thank yeah. you. What inspired you to write this post-apocalyptic, beautifully drip, character-driven and plot-driven story? Well, thank you, Dean. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to read it, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, I think uh, the primary source of inspiration was just being an avid reader and enjoying post-apocalyptic and dystopian fiction since a pretty young age like since high school um i always just really appreciated how the genre was was more or less social commentary right uh taking a look at what could potentially happen if we don't address some of the problems of our day-to-day societies right that's how i always perceived it and i always thought that would be a neat sort of way to explore uh, storytelling. Um, So I guess I was always intrigued by it and I always wanted to try something like that someday. But the main source of inspiration was the blackout of 2003. Quick aside. The Northeast blackout of 2003 happened on August 14th, just after 4 p.m. Eastern time. We assumed this was just like any other blackout and I remember waiting for the power to stutter back on. Except it didn't. Not one light bulb flickered. 
and we heard snippets of how extensive this blackout was. It stretched from Ontario down to New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, Ohio, and Michigan. Almost 55 million people lost power for anywhere from a few hours to a few days. The cause of the blackout was a software bug, which then triggered an alarm when a power line touched a tree, setting off a cascade of human error and equipment failures. This is why I never try to fix my own computer. Uh, back in, in August of 2003, there's this widespread outage that impacted a uh, big part of the eastern chunk of the continent. And I remember that. Yeah, it was a big moment. Uh, I was living in Toronto at the time, but that day I was back in my home community of Wisoxing, uh, house-sitting for my dad and stepmom who were away on summer holidays. I was there with both of my brothers, and um, it was... You know, strange to have a blackout just in the middle of the afternoon on a sunny summer day, right? You know, outages happen here and there, but we're just like, okay, this is weird. Um, and then as the afternoon went on, we got bored. So we got in the car and we drove into town, into Perry Sound, which is about a 10-minute uh, drive from Wasoxing. And we saw that the power was out there too. Uh, the traffic lights were out, stores were closed and so on. And we ran into people we knew and they had heard on the radio that it was this big uh, widespread outage. Uh, you know, power was out in Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, Boston, New York, all these big places. And, and we thought, holy geez, this, maybe this is the big one. You know, maybe this is like the world ender right here. So we went back uh, to our dad's place and started making a plan, you know, we made an inventory of the food in the cupboard. Uh, we collected firewood in case that's how we'd have to cook our food. Because, of course, the electric oven was useless at that point. And we started thinking about the people in our vicinity there on the res. You know, the people who we could go to for help if we needed to. Or the people who we could help if they needed it and so on. And I guess going into that survival mode right away uh, was pretty comforting in that we knew we'd be okay. Um, we were on the lands in our community, surrounded by resourceful people. And if this was an extended crisis, uh, we'd be in okay shape for the time being, right? Uh, but then the next morning, the power came back on and we forgot about all that. And we we're watching TV and playing video games again, you know? I clearly remember when the transition went from, oh, it's just another, it's a blackout, no big deal, to wow, I'm wholly unprepared yeah. <laughs> to function without electricity, without, you know, food, without clean water. So it's interesting to me that you're, you were able to like pivot really quickly and adjust to that and get everything ready that you needed to do to survive. And that's obviously played into the novel <laughs> i went back to uh toronto i think three two or three days later because i had to go back to work and uh went i was living in the high park area at the time and i went back to my apartment where my roommates slash buddies were and we just sort of compared notes about the experience and uh they said oh yeah you know we just uh drank all the beer before it got warm you know <laughs> and we got together with the neighbors and i was like okay yeah that sounds fun for sure and then i said did you guys make any kind of plan 
And they said, no. And uh, I, I sort of realized then, and of course, this is, these are the days before smartphones, social media, et cetera. Right. right? So I, I didn't really uh, understand the scope of the events in Toronto because I was on the res. Eh? But then I started learning about like the long lineups at the gas stations and, you know, the uh, sort of slight panic in the grocery stores and so on. And uh, from then on, I was like, okay, if this ever happens again, I'm going straight up the 400 to Wasoxing because I'm not sticking around the city if this happens again, right? Uh, but yeah, that's that's really what planted the seed. And, and I thought I want to write about this moment someday, somehow, um, in fiction. I, I think I started developing it a little, a little bit more, maybe around 2014, 2015, and then finally sat down to write it in the fall of 2015. Um, and I think took about about a year to get a first draft done. And again, this is, you know, in my spare time while I was working as a journalist, right? And then yeah, I, I got uh, an offer from ECW Press, I think the following summer, and then we spent a year and a bit doing revisions. And then it came out in 2018. So yeah, I guess you could, you know, at least a two year writing process. How was the journey to finding a publisher for you? Well, that that particular experience was a little unusual, I think, in that ECW had approached me a couple years earlier because, you know, they were aware of my fiction earlier, but they knew I was a journalist and they wanted to know if I would consider some sort of nonfiction project. So we started developing something that we hoped would turn into a nonfiction book, um, maybe around like 2013, 2014. Um, but that just never came together. Um, and, and it was a result of like a changing world around us. You know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission issued its final report in 2015. There's just so much evolving in the sort of Indigenous rights and issues realm that uh, it was really hard to pinpoint an actual topic, right? Because they wanted something specifically Indigenous from me, you know, my perspectives as an Indigenous journalist covering these issues. Um, so we couldn't really settle on anything because things were changing so quickly around us. And, and I said to them, well, if you guys are interested in fiction, I have this thing I've been picking away at for a little while. Um, and I do have a manuscript that's pretty much uh, done in draft mode. And I said, are you interested in looking at it? And it was Susan Renouf, the acquiring editor who ultimately edited the novel, who took a look and she was interested in it right away. And uh, yeah, that's how that started. And it was a great experience overall. It's wonderful that you bring your culture and your history and your perspective into the novel. What attracted me and sucked me into the story was here was a perspective of an event that could reasonably happen, but it's approached from a point of view that's completely outside my sphere of, of expertise and experience. And I really appreciate the language and culture and stories that you infused into Moon of the Crested Snow. Well, thanks for picking up on that. Um, yeah, it, it's very deliberate uh, for many reasons. Uh, I think a lot of it uh, comes naturally. Uh, I may not realize how those things sort of uh, spill from my head out onto the screen and into like uh, text form. But also, you know, realizing that I am entering into this realm and attempting to engage with language in different ways, 
is in some ways reclamation or even just claiming space in the first place for Nishnabe stories, Nishnabe language, values, culture, and so on, right? In a lot of ways, I think it's an opportunity to pay homage to my background as a Nishnabe person, uh, but also provide a glimpse into what some of our realities are and provide some commonalities at the same time for other Indigenous people who know what these experiences are like. But having it in the actual text, I think, is um, an opportunity to push back against some of the conventions of literature. And I mentioned Susan Renouf, the editor. She uh, was very encouraging and very empowering in that sense, because in earlier drafts, I would have the characters speaking Ojibwe, but then translating what they said immediately thereafter in English, right? And, and she said, you know, don't, you don't have to do that. You know, make the reader do the work on their own. Um, let the language stand proudly on its own. And there are ways you can write out of those Nishnabemwin words and phrases uh, with action so that the reader knows what's going on, right? Um, so for the language itself, that, that was my intent, uh, was just to make it live, uh, immortalize it in some ways in, in a book form, um, which would never have happened 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's important for me, it's a big responsibility and I take it pretty seriously. We always hear show, don't tell, but when it comes to a, a language, like introducing a new language to a reader, that is more true than, than you know, descriptive clauses Mm. like you really have to tell the story through the action when there's Mm. a different language involved who who were the people you had in mind as you were writing this book well I was mostly inspired by the people I know from my home community uh in Wasoxing uh friends and relatives who you know are just everyday people trying to do good by their families by their communities and so on you know Uh, So I would say like the characters themselves in the book are inspired by all these people in different ways. Um, And not one character is based on anybody real, um, sort of, uh, you know, by no means carbon copied. uh, But, you know, I do take inspiration from what I see happen in my community and the people who are making sure that uh, everybody lives in a happy and healthy way, right? Like that's what I wanted to convey with the characters in the story. Um, Because in a lot of ways, uh, Indigenous people have to fight for that kind of representation. And it may sound a little strange to say that fiction is one of the ideal ways to do it, but I really believe it is. you know, working as a journalist, uh, one of my primary objectives in my career was to give real Indigenous people the opportunity to share their experiences, right? And and CBC has such a wide reach that I really took that uh, responsibility to heart. And, and I wanted to ensure that I, I equipped people with that opportunity. Um, but in mainstream media, you're limited by time and space. Uh, but in fiction, you know, there aren't necessarily many limits, you know, you can go really deep into particular issue or personal experience. And um, there are nuances you can really dive into that it isn't possible to do so in fiction. I mean, in journalism, and and really, it's about pushing back against a lot of stereotypes that really thrive in mainstream media and so on. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's about taking those day to day realities and just showing them in genuine ways. You've mentioned before in other interviews that you, um, your grandmother was a, an influence on you in many ways, obviously. What can you share with me about that? 
Yeah, well, my, my grandmother uh, from the reserve, and, and, you know, I always should mention that I'm of both Anishinaabe and Canadian descent. You know, my, my dad is from Wisoxing and my mom is from the town of Perry Sound. Uh, but I spent a lot of time with all my grandparents when I was growing up, but more closely with my grandmother on the reserve because she lived uh, pretty close to us. Um, and she was always really uh, keen on sharing history with us, her grandchildren. Um, and she wanted, I think, us to have that perspective of uh, how recent, I guess, colonialism has impacted us. And it is an ongoing thing, obviously, it still impacts us. But, you know, the removal from the mainland, um, the imposition of the Indian Act upon our community, uh, the removal of children to go to residential schools, like those things are very recent in our uh, timeline in our community history. Um, so she was always really influential and in driving some of those things home and just reminding us that, hey, you know, you are not that far removed from uh, these brutal measures of, of assimilation, essentially, you know, but at the same time, ensuring that we felt pride in our culture and in our history and so on. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at that impact, like she grew up speaking just Ojibwe when she was a kid and then she raised my dad's and his siblings speaking both. But, you know, by the time I was a kid in the eighties, uh, we spoke mostly English. So just in three generations, that's how quickly, uh, that influence, uh, sort of sweeps through just one family line. Right. He started journalism. I heard and read on a German exchange program when you were 17. What mm. was that like? And like, what did like, just, I want to hear all about it. Cause it's 17. So yeah. Were you, did you, were you on the living on the reservation at the time? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, oh, it was life-changing experience. Absolutely. Um, I was in grade 12 and back then in Ontario, as many of us know, we had uh, the OEC year if you wanted to go to university. So I still had one, one year left to go and had no idea what I wanted to do in terms of post-secondary. Um, so I learned about the Rotary International Student Exchange Program because there was a flyer up in, in our high school, Perry Sound High School. Uh, and I went and checked out this information session and uh, the member of the Rotary Club who was there explained how it all worked. You know, if you were a successful applicant, you got to go to a different country for a year and, you know, you'd live with a few different families. You go to school, learn about the culture and so on. Right. And because I had no idea what I wanted to do for a career, uh, I thought, well, maybe this might be a good opportunity to buy some time. And I uh, went home from school that day and talked to my parents about it. And they thought it was a great idea. They said, you know, we'll totally support you in your application, you know, see what happens kind of thing. And uh, we went through that big, long application process. And eventually I was picked to go to Germany for a year. And this was this was 25 years ago. So 1996. So very long time ago. Um, and uh, about a, a month before I left, which probably would have been about now because I left in July of 1996. I was contacted by an editor of a newspaper called the Nishnabek News. And it's a sort of First Nations based uh, newspaper that serves um, communities in northern, southern, central Ontario. And this editor, his name was Dave Dale. He said, uh, hey, Wob, we heard you're going to Germany for a year. Um, you know, we've never really heard of any of our kids from our communities doing something like this before. So what would you think about writing articles for us about your experiences over there? And by that point, I was really into creative writing and I was fairly informed, I think, in terms of, you know, watching the news and reading the newspaper and so on. 
but despite all that, I had no idea that journalism was a viable career option for me because like no teachers or guidance counselors or anything were telling me about that back then, you know? Uh, so I thought, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. And he said, well, every time we, okay, good. Well, every time we publish you, we'll pay you a hundred bucks and totally blew my mind, you know? 17 years old, not knowing that you could get paid to write. Uh, and here was this opportunity that sort of fell into my lap, which is really cool. Flew over there to Germany in, in July of 1996. And a couple weeks after I got there was my first day of school. And um, immediately, I knew that I was going to have some pretty interesting experiences as an Indigenous person in Germany. Um, and the first day of school, like a bunch of kids came to greet me because they heard that there was an Indian coming to their school, an Indian from Canada, right? And, and some of us may be familiar with the infatuation that a lot of European cultures have with Indigenous cultures in North America, right? Um, I didn't realize that until afterwards, though, like my a good friend, the guy who would become one of my best friends uh, said, hey, yeah, we came to see you that day because we heard that there was an Indian coming. <laughs> and uh, he said, we were kind of disappointed when we saw you because you're wearing jeans and a t-shirt and I had <laughs> short hair back then. And we, we had a good laugh about that. But I was like, okay, I'm going to have some interesting myths and stereotypes to bust while I'm over here. So I wrote about things like that. You know, I wrote about those funny interactions as as an Indian, quote unquote, in, in Germany. And um, when I would fax those uh, pieces over to Nishnabek News, uh, they would print my mailing address of the family that I stayed with at the bottom. Then a couple weeks later, I started getting letters from people saying, oh, you know, thanks for being over there and representing us as Nishnabek and um, speaking the truth and busting those myths and so on. And, and that's sort of when I realized the potential power of the written word, uh, the influence of journalism in bringing people together and sharing real experiences. And uh, after writing a few more things like that, I was like, okay, I, I want to be a journalist. So I came back to uh, Canada, had my last year of high school to do and applied to journalism school. And that's essentially how, how that all began. What went through your mind the first time you saw your name in, in print as a byline? Oh, well... <laughs> Yeah, it was, it's interesting because like the first time it happened, um, I didn't see it until weeks after the fact, right? Because I had to fax this uh, piece over and then they had to mail it to me, you know, and it would come over the ocean, right? <laughs> so yeah, I opened it and just thought, wow, that, that's, that's incredible. Like what a cool feeling, you know, to see uh, something that came out of my head and got printed into this paper that's been distributed to thousands of people, you know? Um, so yeah, that was really empowering in a lot of ways. And yeah, it just inspired me to keep doing it. So now it's 26 years later, you've just transitioned from being a part-time writer to a full-time writer. Mm -hmm. How is your process now different? Um, you know, at, at first it was a really cool, uh, Transition, as you mentioned, it was really neat to sort of um, just spend time at home and focus on the creative side and really let my imagination go uh, unlimited. And I, I left CBC in May of last year in 2020. So I took, you know, maybe a month or so off just to relax. Um, and then when I got to work in the summer, it was a pretty sort of laid back environment all around. And when the fall came around, when I actually did some of the heavier lifting for, uh, I'm working on the sequel to Moon of the Crest of Snow. Um, when I started doing some of the heavier lifting, our our older son, who's four, uh, started junior kindergarten. So it, it all worked out well. 
you know, my wife is home on mat leave with our, our little guy. He just turned one. Um, and I was able to settle into a pretty good routine of just working during the day on uh, fiction, which, you know, is a luxury that I didn't really have before. And it was really cool. Now, like, I got the first draft off uh, about a month ago. So, you know, things have calmed down a little bit again. Um, but then once the revisions start, you know, they'll start ramping up again, right? So it's just, yeah, you, you just sort of ride the waves as best you can. You know, it's torturous for those of us who read Moon of the Crested Snow and follow you on Twitter. It's torturous for us when you drop the the news that the first draft is done and we know <laughs> that it's going to be a long time till we get, hopefully not too long, but it'll be quite a while until we get to read that sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate that interest. That, that, that is uh, so cool. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. At the time this podcast is being edited, Wob is in the middle of two things. One, working on revisions for the sequel to Moon of the Crested Snow and taking some much needed time off during the summer to spend with his family. Also, check out his podcast, The Story Keepers, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. What part of Moon of the Crested Snow is the most challenging for you to write? Um... I would say, um, I think that the most challenging thing for me was developing the pace for it, uh, because the original draft was about 75,000 words, and the final version is barely 60,000. So through editing, we cut about 15,000 words, which could work out to like 40, 50 pages, right? And that was mostly for the sake of pacing. Um, and, and Susan, again, just really reminded me of the necessity of a steady, tense pace in a story like this. Because I think what I got bogged down with in writing earlier drafts was like focusing a little too much on some of the details of the setting and maybe some of the details of like the day-to-day -day mundanity of life, you know? Um, and she said, you know, like, you're, you're writing an end of the world story. It's a thriller, you know, some of these things got to go. And, and I was, I was fine. <laughs> Whenever I'm edited, I'm totally fine letting things go. I, I don't have really an emotional connection to, to much of, you know, the actual um, text, you know, much of the actual prose. Uh, so she really helped me do that. And, and I think I learned a lot in terms of pacing in that sense, because I didn't really consider how important that was in terms of a thriller, you know, and I didn't realize it was a thriller until she told me she She's like, this is a scary story and you got to keep it moving at a good pace. I would say in the context of your, your previous work as a journalist, <laughs> you're compelled to fill in the gaps and to give as much details as you can. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes and when you're writing, it's, you know, you're just writing all the details because yeah. that's what you were trained to do. Yeah, exactly. And also it's like, it's like, oh, I have more space now so I can sort of take some more liberties and, you know, uh, get a little more flowery, but uh, that doesn't necessarily help when you're writing an end of the world story, you know? So yes. What character do you feel most emotionally attached to? Uh, probably the character of Aileen, the elder. Um, and we mentioned my grandmother earlier. Uh, just I, I wrote her because I wanted to 
you know, pay tribute to that figure, the figure of an elder woman in a community and just how important someone like that is, uh, not just to the decision making process of a community, but to its cultural knowledge and that historical foundation. You know, you need people like that to bring you back home, to offer that perspective and to remind you of where you're from and what your people have experienced. Right. Uh, so I, I, I was really careful in writing her because I just wanted to have that influence in the story. Like she's not directly based on my grandmother at all, but there are some elements of her that I, I drew from my own grandmother. Um, and, and my grandmother uh, died three years ago. So um, when I, in an initial draft, that character was named something different, but my grandmother died while I was doing one of the final drafts. So I changed her name to Aileen, which was my grandmother's name. What scene are you most proud of? I, I really like all the dream scenes, um, mostly because those were fun to write. Uh, they were an opportunity to get a little surreal, but also to like dip into the dream world, which we as Nishnabek, um hold in somewhat high regard. Like we see the dream world as, as a place that um, is meaningful, uh, that teaches us about who we are and where we're potentially supposed to go. So I really liked writing those dreams and those references to dreams throughout. Um, the one of the parts that was hardest to write, which I'm glad worked out in the end, was the scene where the two young guys come back from the city, uh, Nick and Kevin. They escape the turmoil of the city where they're going to college, right? And I had a really hard time figuring out how to put that into words, really. And I, I like how that ended up in the end because I had serious doubts about how it was going to work. I, I was happy that that worked out the way it did. There was excellent tension in that scene. And now that you're talking about it, I'm thinking, yeah, that was kind of like a little taste of what it was like back in 2003 when we had the blackout mm -hmm. and, and Toronto was like in chaos. Like, yeah, that. <laughs> was, yeah the tension was brilliant. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. What do you love about being a writer? Oh, I just love using my imagination, you know, like how cool is that, that you can make stuff up and write about it and people read it and engage with it and ask you about it. Um, I, I, I'm just fully humbled and honored by readers who have taken the time to read my books, um, especially Moon of the Crested Snow, because that's has changed my life, uh, the interest in it. It allowed me to switch careers um, and further develop my imagination. It's something that I've always relied upon since I was a kid, mostly for my own personal entertainment, you know, growing up in the bush on the res, <laughs> you know? We didn't have TV when we were kids and obviously no internet or anything else. So that's why I was really um, firmly connected with our old Nishinaabe stories when I was younger, you know, that's what, that was my entertainment in many ways. Right. So, uh, you know, that's provided the foundation for me to develop my own imagination. So like in working in speculative fiction, particularly, uh, that's just a way to crank the imagination up to 11 and you can sort of speculate as to where you want to see the world going or how you, the, the kind of journey you want to bring readers along for. I feel so fortunate and privileged that I have this opportunity opportunity and that this has become my life. And I just want to, you know, make sure I thank you, Dana, and thank everybody else who has just really um, enjoyed the story and, and has supported me and encouraged me to keep this kind of thing going. So uh, that's what I love the most. You're using your powers for good. Yeah, in some ways. <laughs>
trying to anyway. (laughs) What do you find challenging about being a writer? The pressures I put on myself, you know, I I, I hold myself to very high standards. Um, I want to produce something of quality. Uh, And I do have to remind myself that, you know, the first parts, the first steps in creating a story are supposed to be messy. You know, they're supposed to be the unrefined, rough around the edges um, elements that get polished and sort of uh, pared down later on, you know. Um, And I think that's part of my background as a journalist, because, you know, you're under daily pressures to produce something um, under much tighter deadlines. And you have to work really quickly to get something done uh, in a professional, effective way. Um, So I think the toughest part for me has been to sort of relax a little bit um, and just allow myself the time and the space necessary um, to create what I'm hoping to create. Hi, popping in again for a minute. I reference a woman named Marissa in this next little bit. Marissa and I went to journalism school together, graduated at the same time, and in this small world of journalism in Canada, Wab and Marissa worked together at uh, CBC Television in Winnipeg. So, hey, Marissa, shout out. Talk to you soon. You're a Ryerson grad, like myself and Marissa, Mm. how are you feeling about everything that's happening with Ryerson right now? Well, I think it's long overdue. Uh, I had issues myself going into that and actually just wrote a a column for McLean's about it, which should be out in a couple of weeks. It's me again. The article that Wob refers to is entitled A Diploma with the Wrong Name, and it's in McLean's magazine. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. It's important to read this article to get some context about how Wob feels about Ryerson. Now, Egerton Ryerson, who was instrumental in forming Ontario's public school system, was a huge supporter of the systematic conversion of Indigenous children to Christianity. He wrote papers about how to best operate residential schools, and his words became doctrine for the foundation, operation, and implementation of the residential schools. His statue, which stands at the entrance to the university, was smeared with red paint and children's handprints, meant to replicate blood, before unknown persons pulled it down on June 6, 2021. The university has changed its name to X University for the time being until a new name is selected. As a graduate of Ryerson myself, I have to admit I was woefully ignorant of Ryerson, the man's history. And for that and all the pain, I am truly sorry. Yeah, yeah. So that that sort of wraps all my feelings into it. But the, I guess, interesting coincidence is the school I went to on the reserve, it used to be called Ryerson Indian Day School. Um, So yeah, yeah. so my educational journey began with Ryerson and sort of ended with Ryerson too. so yeah, like when I when I had to decide where to go to journalism school, um, I, I wanted to go there because it was in Toronto mostly. Toronto's cool. Toronto's close to closer to my home community than the alternative was Carleton in Ottawa, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had to reconcile um, that knowledge and his legacy with what I wanted for my own future and my own career, right? And I think that's just a reality that a lot of Indigenous people face. You just have to weigh the contradictions about 
about your own existence as an indigenous person in Canada to figure out what's best for your own future. Right. So yeah, I, I made the decision to go there knowing all this, uh, but you know, um, being empowered by my indigenous peers who I met there at the time who said, well, you know, we know, what he would have thought of us being here. He wouldn't have wanted us to be here in the first place. So let's succeed regardless. Let's get our degrees and go on to have successful careers. And that's, that's what always what I saw as the ultimate sort of resistance to his uh, initial, I guess, um, endeavors and his initial wishes for indigenous people. So, you know, I, I was actually, when I saw the statue come down, I was actually stunned, you know, because it's something I imagined, happening uh maybe even fantasized about but never thought that it would actually come to pass well thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today um i i really i loved moon of the crescent snow and a huge thanks to me uh, i really uh have enjoyed this time with you uh thank you very much for your thoughtful questions and just your insights into the book and just your interest in it and uh, i really appreciate any opportunity to talk about it and um yeah i just thank you listeners too for uh being interested this brings us to the end of another episode of what were you thinking you can follow wob on twitter at wob w-a-u-b is his handle and you could buy moon of the crusted snow wherever books are sold thanks for listening all right you know the drill if you hang on to the end i give you some little treats and little secret at the end from the author So here's what Wob had to say when I asked him that question. Tell me something not a lot of people know about you. Huh, well, um, oh, I know. You know, I I am so self-conscious about humor and comedy. Um, I, I am fairly confident about, you know, most things in my life and in what I'm capable of, but I am so shy about trying to be funny. You know, uh, because I've been surrounded by funny people my whole life. I I am a big fan of stand up comedy and everything humorous, but I feel that I am uh, not as funny as uh, the people around me. And, And like to get up on stage and do an open mic stand up is probably the most terrifying thing to me to tell you the truth, you know? Uh, so that's something like I, I, I try, I try to work on and I do want to do some more humorous writing as the years go on. Right. Have you ever done stand up or would you? No, I've never done it. And it would take <laughs> some hard work for me to do it. It would take some really hard work. Thank you. Thank you. Too much applause. This could be shit, but thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out. How's everyone doing tonight?